So open up your Bibles, please, to, um, and if you don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles in the back there, to Mark chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 13 through 27. So I'll go ahead and read verses 13 through 27, and then we'll pray. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, speaking of Jesus. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And then Jesus slapped them. No. (laughs) Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, um, Lord, for your word and just for your truth, that you, Jesus, are truth. And we thank you for the compassion that you have towards us. Uh, We approach you this morning, God, with humility. Lord, I pray for those uh, that are in the midst of a dilemma, God, that have questions, um, Lord, that are unanswered, that are causing strife brokenness and pain, God, that you would heal them, Lord, that you would reconcile that. God, I pray that you would show us what we're holding on to, Lord, whether it be our, our career, our, trying to find our identity, and our families, God. Lord, I pray that you would show us how to relate to one another, that, that you would help us to see you here in this city, to be near you. And God, I, I need you, Lord. We need you as your people. 
So would you please come, Holy Spirit, anoint me to speak your word today, God. We love you, and um, we just pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So we left off where, uh, with Jesus in the temple courts, where thousands upon thousands of people are gathered. And from the farthest, from the farthest place, I mean, you could probably hear his voice. And everyone is gathered there, watching and listening, and, and, and they're, they're talking amongst, amongst themselves. But this Passover is different than any other Passover in Israel's history. You see, many believers believe that the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel, of the world, was going to come. That he was actually here and arrived. And it seems that the entire history of of their nation has fallen to this point, at this place, and on this man. I just wonder what some of the conversations that were going on, or, or, or some of the discussions that were taking place right then. I mean the questions that they were asking. Who is this guy? I mean, can, can, you, can you believe what he said? And what about the leaders? What's he going to do? Is he or isn't he? And if he is, what's going to happen this week? And so the temple is filled with a buzz. It's that time of year, the celebration of the Passover, where, um, where the nation would come and gather and remember and celebrate the, the deliverance from the slavery of Egypt, that God would send a Messiah that they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And so just two days ago, as Jesus as rides in uh, to Jerusalem with shouts of, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the crowds pick it up and they say, save now, save now, bring, bring power, bring justice, bring prestige, bring the kingdom back. All of these things. And then, just one day ago, he, Jesus walks into the temple and, and he finds a crooked swap meet. A place that's ripping people off. A place where people are not welcome. A place that's not open to all nations. To find and meet with a loving and just God, he doesn't find that there. And so he tears the temple apart. And all heaven breaks loose. That's not what they expected from the Messiah. Then he curses a fig tree because it wasn't producing any fruit. And they come to him asking questions, who are you? And by what authority are you doing these things? And so now Jesus is in the middle of the temple courts. There's just so much tension, so much expectation. It's just a perfect storm. Everyone is asking Jesus and the, Sanhed the Sanhedrin were asking questions, attempting to trap him, just so that, they could, so that they could shut him up, so that they could embarrass him, just simply to trap him. And it seems that for the last 2,000 years, just everything politically and socially, economically, I mean morally, you know, has been building to this point in history, and now Jesus is forcing the issue. Now, some of us... Some of you ha here have questions today about who Jesus is. I mean, whether you believe him or not. And today we're going to look at two more questions. One is a political question, and one is a theological question. Now, the political question, 
tries to trap Jesus between his loyalty to God and loyalty to Rome. The theological question uh, tries to trap Jesus between two religious groups. And so that's what we're going to look out at today. But I, I love in, in Mark how, uh, how he puts the story of Jesus together. Because everyone in Mark's story, I mean, we as readers, we know uh, who Jesus is, but no one really knows who he is in the present day. So the way that Mark tells the story, he invites your questions. And Mark isn't intimidated by it. Jesus certainly isn't intimidated by it. And God is bigger than your questions. He's bigger than all of our questions. And he can handle them. But when answering a question sometimes, no matter how good the answer is, some people are just still going to resist. So just three days away from the end of Jesus' life, we're going to look at his words and how he responds to these questions that he was asked. Let's pick up in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, this was a strange combination of people. I mean, it would be kind of like combining lobster and fried chicken. I mean, the two, it's just an unlikely combination. I mean, maybe here they could pull it off in San Francisco, but anywhere else it would just be unheard of. And, you know, in the right corner we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are are intensely religious. They're anti-Roman. They're purists, conservative right-wingers. They hated Jesus because he was disrupting their religious agenda. And then in the left corner, joining hands with them, we have the Herodians. The Herodians were non-religious allies with Rome. They were sellouts. I mean, these guys were like the liberal political animals of the day. And they believed that Herod should be honored of king of that region because he was the Roman-appointed ruler. The Herodians would say that if you want to live a decent life, then you better play by the rules because it was the way to prosperity and success. But the two have united and they've come together in their opposition to Jesus. Now, I want to point out two things of this encounter that really gets to a deeper issue here. So the first part is flattery. Notice how the religious leaders approach Jesus to trap him. And and look at what they do. They approach him with flattery, saying, you are true, you are great, you only speak the truth of God. They flatter to get their own way, and they don't really care about Jesus. They just wanted to trap him. And it's ironic because they've already claimed five times that they want to kill him. They come to Jesus trying to trap him in his words. And, and, I mean, this is exactly what flattery is. It's a way of getting what we really want by telling people what we think they want to hear. And we do this at home uh, with our relationships, at work. We do it all the time. But it's toxic because it's really just self-centered. The Pharisees and the Herodians were just buttering Jesus up like toast. I mean, they were serving up to him big time. I mean, I used to do this all the time when I was, um, you know, when I got my driver's license. I do that to my mom all the time. I'd be like, mom, I'd be like, you're the best. I love you. Can I have the car keys? But the bigger issue here is that we do this with God. 
We flatter him with our songs. And we flatter him with our prayers without any true commitment to really follow him. So how do you approach Jesus? Is it on my terms? If he agrees with me? If it doesn't cost me anything? If it makes my life easier? Or maybe I'm just demanding an answer to my question. Answer me, Jesus. Answer me now. But now on the other hand, look at how God approaches us. God approaches us with in, in a relentless pursuit. And we saw this. I mean, he, you know, in the parable of the tenants, he keeps sending us messenger after messenger after messenger. And, you know, we resist. He even sends, or, or maybe for, for, for some of us, I mean, he'll send you a coworker or a friend or someone from the past. He even uses situations or circumstances. And finally, he sends us his son. Now, question one. Here it is, the political question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Wait, that's what they came up with? A tax question? I mean, you know, on my 1040, line 13, how do you fill that out? Hmm. I mean, maybe that worked for Capone. Capone wasn't even there. I mean, yes, we're going to get Jesus on a tax question. Really? I mean, if Jesus answered pay, the Pharisees would have accused him before Pilate, or excuse me, before the priests, um, as the one who regarded the Jewish nation under subjection to Rome, making him unpopular with the people. But if he replied, do not pay, the Herodians would have accused him before Pilate as an insurrectionist who taught rebellion. And we all know that the Roman government, anything, I mean, when, when you would say, pay no taxes, and, and, and they're chanting in the streets, uh, you know, death to Rome, usually uh, the person chanting that was the one who ended up death or dying. Now, just for the record, I just want to say that I love paying taxes. I love the IRS. I think that they are from God. Um, but when it comes to taxes, I mean, and we're, we're right at that, at that time. I mean, April 15th is right around the corner. I mean, it just doesn't matter how much or how little the tax is. It just always seems to be too much. But why? I mean, why is it too much? You see, it's too much because we think all our money is our money. We think it belongs to us. Like, I earned this. It's my money, and you can't have it. But when that question came out then, I mean, everyone gasped. <gasps> and they waited to hear how Jesus would respond. Now, understand that at this time, taxes went to Caesar. And Tiberius was the Caesar of the time. He was God of the Roman Empire and claimed to be deity. And on, his, and on the coin was his, it was his inscription and his face. Now, for the Jewish listener, I mean, you would understand exactly what's going on here. Because one of the very first commandments is that you should have no other gods before you. And, and, and now, I mean, it's God and God alone. And now here you have to pay taxes to this guy who claims to be God. I mean, and, and for the Jewish listener, I mean, that, that's like a graven image. You would even have issues with the coin. Because currency back then was, was a lot of the currency, it didn't have any graven image on it. So, it's not just political, 
It's not just social, but it's a big religious issue. And so then this hush comes over the temple. It, it just gets quiet. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Once again, Jesus is, is letting them know that he knows what's going on. And here's the second part of the deeper issue in this encounter. Hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy has the idea of acting a part or, or just wearing a mask, putting on a, an affront. And Jesus says, why are you doing this to me? Why are you taking my life and trying to, to find loopholes in it? Why are you trying to take my life and what God is trying to do through me and try to put God in a lose-lose situation? Is that what you're making religion out to be? Oftentimes we try to approach God and, and work our way around things. I mean, isn't this what Jesus talked about in the parable of the tenants? What did he say? He said, you're supposed to bear fruit, but instead you've made this about you. You've turned religion into what profits you. And that's exactly what he saw when he entered the temple. So Jesus comes right back to what he's been teaching this whole time. And that is this, it's ownership. Remember the vineyard? God has given you everything that you need to produce fruit. He, he's given you the vine. He's given you the tower, the wall. He's, 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 he's done all of that for you. You just need to produce fruit. But here's the problem. We hijack what God has given to us and we think it's ours. You see, the parable of the tenants isn't a story about an owner who wants everything back. But he does expect a return. The owner says, I deserve a portion back. Don't just look good on the outside, like the barren fig tree, but bear fruit. So what we see here is that it shows God's generosity with us. It shows God's trust with us. That God has given you your life and trusts you with it for good or for bad, it's yours. It shows God's patience. I mean, messenger after messenger, he keeps on sending, culminating with the owner sending his son for you. Now that is God's overwhelming grace. At this point, I, I think it's interesting that um, Jesus didn't even have one of these coins and... You know, I mean, certainly Judas didn't have any either. I mean, he was just hoarding them all actually for himself. But, but, but verse 16 here, it says, And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So on this piece of Roman currency, Jesus says, Whose inscription is this? And they're like, uh, Caesar's. And he's like, And whose face is this? Um, Caesar's? Well, if it's his face and his writing, then it belongs to him. You see, what Jesus is saying is that if you put your face and writing on something, then it must be yours. I mean, if I go and write a check somewhere, I have to write my name on it to indicate that it's mine. And, and many of you guys have a credit card with your face on it to show that it's yours. 
What Jesus is saying is that if, he, if it's already his, then why don't you give it back to him? And plus, if you have the coin, then you must be using it. And if you're using it, then give it back to him. Now, if he stopped there, great. But he doesn't. He goes one step further and says, whose image is on you? Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar what has his name and his writing on it, but give to God's what is his. You see, the thing that has the image has the power over the things that carry its image. But what's more important here is what's owned by another. It's you. Do you guys remember um, Toy Story and Woody the Cowboy? What, what was engraved on Woody's foot? Andy. <laughs> Andy. I mean, it was like Woody's badge of honor. Woody had, his, had Andy written on his, name, on his foot to indicate that he belonged to Andy. And God has engraved his name on us because we belong to him. You know, we're the only creature that's made in God's image. It says it in Genesis 126 and 127 that we were made in the likeness of God. Now, for some of you, it might be surprising that, that you and I bear the image of God, that, that, that the image of God has been placed on you and I. And furthermore, we're, we're really precious in God's sight. Um, <clears throat> another time when I was a teenager, I had many of those times actually, but um, when I was a teenager, the legal drinking age was 18. Shows you a little bit about my age. Figure that one out. But um, some of my friends and I, you know, we wanted to go to the clubs and to the um, bars in Georgetown and Washington, D.C. And, and so um, somehow we came across these fake IDs or, or these IDs that weren't ours. I mean, we just found them. They were laying on the road and, you know, it kind of looked like me. And so I took it. Um, and then, you know what I did as, as, I, as I, I etched out the lamination and then I, I, I like scratched my name over this other person's name. And, and then I, I kind of sealed it back up and then I presented it. And at first glance, um, you know, it, it worked at first glance. But, but really, all what I was doing was I was just scratching over someone else's name. And, and, and it, that, that license didn't belong to me. It wasn't me. Do you see how you and I try and find our identity, uh, maybe in, in our careers or in our job or, or in a relationship? It's like these things kind of scratch, make an impression over us. And when we find that relationship, everything's fine. But when we lose it, we feel that we've lost everything. I mean, where do you belong? Where do we belong? Who owns us? See, the bigger picture here is that you and I belong to someone else. It brought Woody, the cowboy, meaning and purpose to belong to Andy. 
So when he was lost, he could get home. So if I belong to God, and if you belong to God, what does that mean? I mean, how does that settle in my heart? How does that settle in my heart, and what does that do to my hands to keep from grasping onto things like my career or maybe my sexuality, my family? How do you keep those things from trying to scratch its name over you? You're God's, so give yourself to Him. And quit worrying about your money. Quit worrying about your career. Quit worrying about all these things and give your life to Jesus because it's His. Give to God what is God's. You see, Jesus took an answer and He brought it back to what He's been teaching this whole time. Ownership. Ownership. Have you given to God what is his all of those things your sexuality your career your identity your money your hobbies i mean does the question really ever end it doesn't it goes and applies to all of those things now i want to be um as gentle as possible to say this because it's also it applies to me as well Stop the flattery. Stop the hypocrisy. Stop all the, 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 the empty talk. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then, then through our songs and through our prayers, we should give him what is his. And we should give our lives back to him. So what's the response? The response... They marveled at him. I mean, I find that I marvel when I have questions, unanswered questions, and I bring them to God. I am left like (gasps) amazed. And that's what it says here. And they marveled at him. Okay, so now it's like tag team wrestling. I mean, the the Pharisees and the Herodians are out, you know, and now here come the Sadducees. And they're like marching in. It's like tag team. It's like now they're in. And... And now come the Sadducees with question number two, the theological question. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now the Sadducees were, were the Jewish priestly elites. They were the smallest um, group, but the most influential of the Sanhedrin that made up this kind of um, uh, this uh, uh, group of, of uh, the Sanhedrin. They were wealthy, immoral, they were hedonistic, and the reason so is because they were they were relativists. I mean, they they didn't believe in the afterlife, so everything that they 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 thought that everything that was uh, that that existed was here today and now. So what distinguishes the Sadducees is what they believe about the afterlife. And what you believe about the afterlife also defines you as well. And it distinguishes you. It shapes and defines and forms your everyday life. So what happens when you think you die die defines who you are. 
Now, just keep in mind that um, they're asking a question. They don't believe in resurrection, but they're asking a question about resurrection. And Jesus has actually taught about the resurrection. So it's a personal affront to Jesus. Jesus says in John 15 that I am the resurrection. So the future that we have is ultimately tied to his. Now, despite the improbability of this theological question, um, you know, again, all they cared for was just literally to shut the mouth of Jesus. That's all that they wanted to do. They just wanted to shut him up. And so he finds himself in the middle of a theological dilemma. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, they say that there's no such thing as a dumb question, but I think this is the dumbest question in all of the Bible. They think that Jesus has been teaching something ridiculous all along. And the crowds realize that what they're trying to do, they're just trying to embarrass Jesus. Now, I think that the better question here is, who in the resurrection would want this woman after she's killed off seven men? (laughs) But what this question is really dealing with is Leverite marriage. And it's a question that's framed, and it's framed hypothetically. It's framed in a hypothetical question. Please understand that marriage is a, is, is, a, is a type of picture of relationship that God has with us. You see, God has this thing about, about our names being blotted out and that we won't be remembered. He wants to make sure that we are remembered. I mean, I think, I think that that's probably why we erect memorials and we like to put our names on things and on buildings is so that we'll be remembered. Or that, you know, it would bring honor or something like that. I mean, I don't know who my great-great-great-grandfather was. I know, what I know is I have nine middle names. I don't even know in what order they go to. Point is, I just don't remember. But God says that you mean something to me. You see, um, at this time, none of the inheritance went to women. So the Levitical law prescribed a remedy. And that remedy would be in order to, um, one, take care of the widow, and two, it would be to make sure to um, preserve the family inheritance through the brother. Do you see how God remedies those things and answers those questions? But how do we deal with God in the hypothetical? I mean, okay, let me show you how silly your Bible is. Uh, by hypothetical example. You know, if God created a rock so big that he couldn't move it, could he move it? So how do you approach the Bible? I mean, if it's like an owner's manual. And if God really does own you, then it's more than a book. It's your life. And this is the way that you operate it. And this is the way that you live by it. Because it's the best way for you to operate and live. So the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the resurrection, but they still asked about it. And Jesus responds. 
Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Jesus isolates two foundational errors that make this whole discussion pointless. One, you don't know the Scriptures. And two, you don't know the power of God. Now, maybe you think the Bible is silly, or maybe you think that the God of the Bible is a bit of a joke because of the Christian sex ethic, or maybe you think that the Bible represses women, or that, that the Bible and Christians are, are uh, anti-gay. Some people use what they think they know of the Bible as an excuse not to trust in God. For example, um, God and the Bible um, says sex outside of marriage is wrong. I mean, how oppressive is that? How absurd. I mean, it's, it's just natural. No amens, please. Uh, but, but could it be that you don't understand that the, that the biblical sex ethic is less about oppressing your desires and more to do with the nature and character of God and how you were made to reflect his image? You see, a lot of people use the little things they know about God in his word. Um, you know, they, they, they just pick out these little things rather than getting more information about him and pressing into him and trusting him. So my question to you is, is do you know the scriptures? I mean, I, I try and get up every day and somehow I just, I, I mean, I, I want to I kind of plow through it because I want to know it. And so I go to it, and I read it. In my car, you know, I mean, I've had this car for like four years, and it's got all these bells and whistles on it. And, and um, you know, sometimes on the Bluetooth thing, another call comes in, and, and then the, the call gets dropped, and I don't know how to operate it. I mean, I've had the car for four years. The owner's manual is right in the glove compartment. If I just opened it up and read it, I mean, I'm sure that, that there's an answer to that problem. But I just don't. So do you know the scriptures? So Jesus responds to the Sadducees, um, since you don't think the resurrection exists, um, Sadducees, we're just going to go to Moses. You see, the Sadducees only believe in the first five books of Moses. So I like how Jesus takes us, he answers, your, and he meets us, and he speaks to us on our terms, even. So he says, remember the burning, bu- remember the burning bush? What did God say? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You see, they assume, the Sadducees assume that Abraham, that Isaac and Jacob were dead. But if they no longer exist, then God cannot be their God when they say that he is. I mean, if they're only piles of dust at the moment, God's statement would just be flat out stupid. And notice the tense here. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, in heaven, there's no progression of relationship like anything here on earth. And notice also that Jesus doesn't say that there will be no marriage in heaven. 
He just says that they will neither be given in marriage um, or that that they won't marry nor be given in marriage. He doesn't say that there's not going to be any marriage. But it's, it's this progression of relationship. Like in dating. I mean, you know, when we date here, I mean, I, I counsel with you guys, I know. It's like you express interest in one another and then your Facebook status changes and then, and then you get engaged and then you get married. Or, or the life cycle. I mean, I was once a boy and then, uh, then I became a young man and then I became... Um, you know, a student, and then I got engaged, and, you know, this progression in life that we, that we go through. Do you see how it goes on and on? And then I become a father, and then an uncle, and then a grandparent. I mean, it just keeps playing itself out and out and out. And what Jesus is saying is that heaven will be a perfect state of relationship, and you won't be wanting or in need of anything. So Jesus responds, you're mistaken, you don't know the scriptures, and you don't even know the context. You don't read the owner's manual clearly because there's perfection in heaven. Now, I like to think that the Pharisees at this point were like, at least our question was good. (laughs) You see, religion will either turn into the bondage of legalism or the emptiness of tradition. Now, the answer to legalism goes beyond rules to relationship. And the answer to, to, to tradition goes, it, it, it needs power. It requires power. And not just in form, it needs power. So give yourself wholly to God. Friends, we are made in the image of God. You and I are made in God's image. Do you see that? Do you see how we're fighting against God and trying to find out who we really are? And, and you know, we find out who we really are once we see ourselves uh, th- through whose we are because we belong to another. You and I belong to God. So because you belong to God, render to God what is God's. But here's the deal. Relationship must be a two-way street. I mean, any real relationship. Because if it's not, and if it's just one way, that's just exploitation. It's not relationship. I mean, why should you give yourself to God? Maybe you're thinking, why? Here's why. Because he gave himself for you. Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, um, that you can be found. God, we thank you, um, more importantly, that you have found us and that you have come into our lives uh, to open our eyes and our ears, Lord, that you have entered into our dilemma, our questions, and then you reconciled all things. God, that you put them back together. And we thank you that you don't leave us where we are, but you take us home with you because, Jesus, we belong to you and we are yours. Amen.